My guest, Peter Gizzi, is an award-winning poet, editor, translator, and a beloved teacher. Gizzi, who was raised in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, began writing poetry at a very young age. He's now published seven collections of poems, with an eighth forthcoming this year, as well as numerous chapbooks, broadsides, and artist books. As an editor, Gizzi founded and co-edited the revered journal Oblique, and amongst other projects, has overseen two seminal works on Jack Spicer, The House That Jack Built, Lectures of Jack Spicer, and with Kevin Killian, My Vocabulary Did This to Me, The Collected Poems of Jack Spicer. Peter, you've said your poetry is like breath on a mirror. It's real. We see it. It's an apparition. It's material. These paradoxes, the shift between things that one can touch and those that are beyond our reach, are a constant in your work. Where does this come from, and what is it that such things illuminate? When I think of the metaphor of breath on a mirror, it's also something that evaporates. We see it, it's an actual thing, and then it's gone. And I feel that's what life is, the whole mystery of life, consciousness. It's something that we that comes into focus then it blurs, and then it's gone. I think that the voice is real. It's a texture. It's a sonic experience. It's sculptural sound, and you can live inside of it. But I'm interested in capturing the fleeting, or that which is here and then gone. And that can be a human life. That can be a tree. Often for me, that fleetingness is just life itself, human periodicity. In many ways, I feel that my poems are elegies, and I think that the elegy is a fierce form in which to record reality. It's that double view of being here and understanding that we're going to be gone for a much longer time than we are here. So being here is both needs to be a celebration, it needs to be seen as a kind of mystery and something that's miraculous, and it's also something to see that it's extremely frail. My poems are often considered ecstatic, and I'm happy for that reading of them because I think that grief and joy are proximate. They touch one another, and we can't understand either unless they're both there in the utterance. There's also in many of your poems a tension between your interior world and external reality, and you've spoken about this. You said the need to connect the inner life with the social is a formal concern or the invisible with the material, or the staging of private denouement with an economic political reality. In what way are these formal concerns? And I I wonder if you think that they're only formal. To answer the latter question, they're not only formal. But when I think of form, I love what Samuel Beckett once wrote late in his life. He said, the task of the artist is to find a form to accommodate the mess. And I feel that I have a lot of mess in my interior life, a lot of turbulence. So when I can take that turbulence, the distortion of feeling or the overwhelmingness of feeling or even the feeling of lack, of not understanding the emotion that's coursing through me, the poem is a way in which it creates some kind of order. So form is a way of order as a way of creating an order of reality. And so when I talk about these polarities that you mention, 
I think that where these where two things meet, where the private and the social meet, is where the poem happens, or when the subject, the citizen, meets the outside governing world, where these two things meet, that's where the poem exists. And so it's maybe in a simpler way to say it, it's the interior life of the imagination dealing with the material world that's around us. And when these two polarities cross a kind of chiasmus, that's where the voice performs. For me, that is reality, the imagination and the outer world. When you say formal, a lot of people might think that you're talking about the physical construction of the poem. And is that what you mean when you use that word in this context? Well, I think that each poem has its own natural history, and so that each poem finds its form. Going back to the Beckett quote, to find a form to accommodate the mess, for me, to constitute a speech act, a singular speech act, the poem has to find its own form, whether in short lines or long lines, stanza breaks, not stanza breaks, prose, or some weird prosoid form. So that's what I mean by form. But to me, the emotion creates the form. Let's hear about your first book. Well, the first book in my list is The Master Letters of Emily Dickinson. I gave a talk at the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. on her birthday, and I wrote something about The Master Letters, and I don't think I can ever say it better than I do here. So let me just read some excerpts from that. These three letters were written between 1858 and 1862. We have no evidence that they were ever sent. They are all the more moving to me as a portrait of her mind because they remain as drafts and remain unfinished, full of starts and stops. There's many alternate words and tenses in the margins, emendations that have gone uncorrected. How do we begin to characterize this piece of writing? Is it a letter, a poem, a free write before being transformed into something else? Does it matter? It's such an incredible act of language, of interiority, of thinking, of trying to find a language of heightened being, being entirely made of words, all the pressure, all the limits, the vast, the losses, the ecstatic reach of contact are here in this strange and wild, wild utterance. To me, this artifact, an unsent draft and found in her room, is one way in which we can look closer to the unedited mind and ambition of expression that this woman so utterly possessed. In fact, it is an artifact of her laboratory. For me, growing up in Western Massachusetts, which is also where Emily Dickinson wrote and lived in Amherst, I grew up an hour west in Pittsfield, where Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. Western New England is dotted with the birth of the American language. For Dickinson and these other enduring writers of the 19th century, they gave me the language in which I compose, which is the American language, which is different than English. When I grew up, there was the Berkshire Athenaeum, which is this big, beautiful, old 19th century granite building that, as a child, seemed endless and enormous. And when I would go to a section of the library to find a book, I always passed by the Melville Hawthorne Room. So they were ever-present. The 19th century writers were ever-present. They wrote the music of my childhood. And Dickinson, to me, a poet that I came to a little later, because Whitman was so important to me, but Dickinson I found, and once I found her, she became a model for me. Her strangeness, her interest in the vast and the beyond, her preoccupation with death, which she called 
her flood subject. All of these things spoke to me because of their intensity and their spiritual quality. For me, she would become our greatest poet. You said there that the building of an American tradition of literature was a break from English literature, and I'd be interested to hear how you think it differs. It's a long conversation, but to put it in a thumbnail sketch, for each one of these enduring writers, Whitman, Emerson, Hawthorne, Melville, Dickinson, it was a crisis of form. I'll give two examples, or maybe a few. Emerson wrote poems. They're terrible. They're written in a kind of British canonical way, in stanzas and meter. But his essays, his prose, is really his poetry. If you read an essay like Circles, it's a prose poem. It could be like a John Ashbery prose poem. Whitman took the versit form of the King James Bible, but he brought it down on the street and made it bark and put it in the wild horizontal populace of Manhattan. Melville took Shakespeare and the Bible and combined them in these remarkable soliloquies that behave as an epical poetry, while Whitman kept it horizontal on the street, what he called the blab of the pave. Melville took that muscular vocal language, but he peopled the endless lanes of the sea. And so therefore, it's extremely vertical. For Dickinson, she took the American Psalter, or what we would call a hymn book, and she kind of broke its spine. And she took that rhythm and that music of the American psalm book, and she kind of made this spiky, haunted music out of this traditional Christian music. And it's even more interesting because she completely disavowed what was happening in her time, which was this wild, revivalist Christian atmosphere. And she purposefully and definitively rejected it. And in fact, when she was at school, she was the only person, the only woman in her class who would not accept Jesus as her savior. And we have to remember that the master letters and her other writing all occurred during the Civil War. So there's an amazing critique that's also at the base of her writing, both of war and of Christian culture and the horrors of Christian culture. As I was preparing for this conversation, I read another interview in which you said, I've always imagined the voice in the poem as being posthumous. That's a very provocative, interesting thought. I'd love to hear you talk about that. What I think of when I say that is that I'm working in a language that's haunted. It's bigger than me. It's older than me. It doesn't live in me. I live in it. We all do. And it's a haunted prospect to sing in something that is long gone, is becoming. And so when I write, when I use pronouns like I or you, I'm imagining that those and hoping that those pronouns will perform long after I'm gone. So I like to cast the voice on the other side of the river. And I guess that's what I mean when I say that elegy is a fierce form, because I can write with the understanding that I'm here and I'm not here. I'm alive, but I'm also aware that I'm gone. So I position the voice in that gone space to understand the being here space. When you say I'm alive, but I'm also gone, is this a sort of quantum thing that we're talking about? The continuum of time? Is that what you mean by that? 
Can you unpack quantum for me? Well, I'm not a physicist, but I think that if I'm not mistaken, that quantum theory suggests that all of time is happening at once. That's pretty much true. And Ezra Pound was very good with that when he said all time is contemporaneous. And I believe in that. I also believe because we're born as artists of the works that gave us voice, that we're already working in a kind of ghost world. And I remember, and this touches on the Dickinson, my 15-year-old godson, or when he was 15, Ethan, he called me and he said, Uncle Pete, we're reading Emily Dickinson in school. And he said, I now understand what it is that you do. You work in the ghost world. Truer words were never spoken because that's where poetry exists. It's what Jack Spicer said. It's how we dead men talk to one another. And we're talking to one another in this haunted language on the other side of being, hoping that our work will be received by someone in a new present. But what they're going to be reading is something that's already gone to the author. And it's even to give to make it more of a mundane way of thinking the posthumous. The moment I write the poem, and that poem is set, and by the time it's received, it's already dead to me because I'm somewhere else. You said, Peter, that poetry is a private art, yet the act of publishing, of giving readings of your work, makes the private also very public. And I think the private is obviously very interesting in relation to Emily Dickinson. I'm curious how you navigate these two very different spaces. What's behind the impulse to make the private public? Okay, just quickly, the first part of the private and the public, I think they've collapsed. I think the public world is now touching our private world because of the way in which everything's happening so quickly, the way that we use screens, the way that the damaged language of the commercial world has now entered our interior life, and that desire is also now connected to commodities and things that we want. But the other way to think about it is when I say it's private, it's a homespun experience. It's something that's ungainly. It's mine. It's a discovery. And what am I discovering when I write? I thought when I was younger, it was an act of will. And so I'd make these kind of linguistic, alacrative surfaces to show my stunning ability, right, of youth. But then I've come to realize it's really an experience of listening and receiving. What I'm listening to, in fact, is what I've discovered over the years, what I'm writing and what I'm discovering. And the great, great experience of being a poet is what I am writing and enlarging is my definition of personhood. And that's private, but it's also civic. Writing poems allows me to understand the kind of wider horizon that I exist in. But when I say it's private, I don't write about my life. I don't write about what happened. I don't write narrative poems. I don't write autobiographical poems. But I certainly take what's happening in my life, in my immediate surround. And in the last decade, it's been many, many, many losses. I've lost so many people. But I don't write about their story. I write out of the condition of being faced always with looking at the threshold of death. Now, the second part about stepping out into the world and reading these things that I've written, I find it always difficult because I always think, here comes the sad guy to bring us down. But People don't actually hear it that way, even though I feel a little nervous about that. Because my poems certainly aren't groovy. They're not funny. They're not trying to entertain in any way. 
they're mostly about the act of grieving, at least the last decade with Threshold Songs, Archaeophonics, and then this new book that's forthcoming with its very obvious truth and advertising title, Now It's Dark. Peter, let's hear about book number two. Well, book number two is maybe the most foundational of all the books that I've read, and it's The Odyssey. That book was at the center of my life as a teenager that opened up a world. I remember when I first read it when I was 15 or 16 as a, as a junior in high school. And this lovely elderly man who was in his 70s, a small man with white hair who smoked camel straits named Sam Worthen, taught this English class and he asked us to read the Odyssey. And I remember my feeling when I read it, my body was on fire. It was like love. I mean, my body was literally on fire. I was like holding this nimbus of light. And I guess why it spoke to me so dramatically and so personally, and why it brought me into its great adventure was the figure of Odysseus's son, Telemachus, which means away from war, Telemachos. I related to the boy waiting for his father to return, waiting to show the world that he was connected to something special. And in my private life, I'd lost my father two years earlier to a plane crash, which I witnessed on television and found out about his death, which was an irrevocable marking experience of my early life and completely devastated my family in various ways. So when I read the Odyssey and this boy was waiting for the return of his father, who was considered by all accounts exceptional, he makes a voyage out to find out about his father, and he sees Nestor, the wise man, and he makes this trip, this little circuit, and he comes back home, and it's called the Telemachia. Because remember that the Odyssey is built up of individual sagas of each figure. Every town which every figure came from had a story in a saga. So Homer, or who we call Homer, weaved all of these sagas together into one narrative. But what's also amazing about Homer is the incredible parallel constructions, because that foreshadowing of that circuit is what's going to happen later for Odysseus's father in a much bigger circle that he will return. And so what moved me was this idea by sympathetic magic that if you could make complete the circuit, then your beloved would return. Now, of course, in my case, it was a fantasy because my father wasn't coming back. But the fact that he did come back was a joy of my deepest wish. Other than that, it's one of the greatest stories ever told. Few people get to go to hell and come back. It's pretty great. You mentioned your father's plane crash. You also said that unlike Telemachus, your father went on a journey and didn't come home. It's impossible, I think, to imagine the enormity of this from the outside. How did you cope, Peter? You were 12 years old when that happened. Well, anger. I was enormously outraged that this would happen. I mean, I thought my father was bigger than a plane crash. I was shocked that he couldn't just walk away. But that's the boyhood magical worldview. It was horrible. I mean, my mother became irrevocably sad, but more important, just lost and how to proceed because my father was the center of the family and took care of everything. 
she would later blossom, which was the gift we were all given. We would all later find ourselves, at least my mother and I did. My brother Michael, my older brother Michael, who was a poet, who gave me this art, who introduced me to this art at a very young age, he was hospitalized for manic depression. And then after my father's death, he became a kind of horrible alcoholic, which plagued him his whole life until he died of it when he was 61. And my brother Tom, two years after my father's plane crash, was hospitalized for paranoid schizophrenia and was in a horrible lockdown ward on the worst medicine for about five years. So the 70s were pretty broken and horrible for me. How did I cope? It's a good question. I don't know how I survived. And I think if I survived in any way, I survived by honoring the thing my father gave me, which he was the only one in my family that mirrored back to me some version of myself that I had hoped to be, and I had hoped to be like him. Now, in my later life, I am closer to him now than I've ever been in my entire life because in many ways, I've honored the things that he gave me. And the things he gave me was a profound understanding of the good he was a scientist, a way of looking at the world and making rational deductions of how things worked. He had an extremely devotional mind. He was devoutly Catholic. So I believe in having a vertical imagination is important and important to reaching the good. The vertical imagination and the good are important to public life and being a citizen. He gave me many great things and mostly he loved me unconditionally. I only had him for a short time, but I've come to realize that what I was given was the gift of a life. But during the 70s, I was lost. I went to five high schools. I didn't perform well in school at all. In fact, I hated it. I was lost. And then I got involved pretty early on with drugs in the 70s, mostly marijuana and psychedelics, and then in the 80s, narcotics. And it wasn't until I left, I was a street junkie, and I left in 1987, and what became of me was that first year of getting straight, I basically came to terms with grieving my father's loss. That's how long it took, and that's how much it affected me. You mentioned that your father was a devout Catholic, and I think your mother was also, and there's often in your poetry a deep sense of reverence, and sometimes even incantation. In your poem, Periplum, you wrote, somewhere faith enters and must be pinned and sighted. A church tower is good for reference, but losing ground. I know that you don't write about your life, but I'm interested in hearing about your relationship with the church and also in what ways faith guides you as both a person and a writer. I could say that poetry is a form of prayer. And when we talked about privacy earlier, to stay in this art, which has very little kind of benefits in the world, but to stay with this art is a spiritual practice in the end. Wallace Stevens says, God and the imagination are one. How high we light that highest candle in the dark. What I most loved about church, Richard, was that I could be seen with my family who being the youngest by nine years with Tom, 11 years with Mike, and then my parents were much older, I got to be seen with these remarkable people. You know, when I was young, all my people had larger bodies. And 
I was hyperactive. I had a hard time sitting still. But in church with my father, who was so devout and so humbled by it, I came to order. And what I came to order in was the music, the singing, the incense burning, the colored light coming through the stained glass window, and the incantation of the liturgy, which when I was a boy was in Latin. So they were singing in this ancient, mysterious language that I couldn't understand, but I knew that something enormous was being claimed. And that part spoke to me. And then growing up in a religious community, you're always being given this concept of God. And it left me with questions because my father taught me in a scientific way to take things apart, and I just questioned it endlessly. What could be that force? What could be that element we call God? And for me, I've come to realize that it's the night sky. The world is brighter now, but when I was younger, you could see the Milky Band. You could see the whole thing, the whole panoply across the horizon. At least growing up in the Berkshires, I could. To me, that means that I'm the right size. It tunes me. I'm neither bigger than anything or smaller than anything. I'm the right size. And if I look at that vast, unstable, multiplying narrative that's above us all the time, I realize that I am a part of it. And the material matter that just makes my hands and my body, my brain, the minerals and the chemicals can be found almost anywhere in this vast horizon. So I am part of something that is miraculous and I'm also just a speck. And I, I really like that. And so I think I found my notion of divinity in the night sky because I couldn't really follow the notion of a bearded, wise old man sitting in a throne. And I realized because it's material and it was organic, for me, it means that God is in everything or some animating force is in everything. That could just be the spark that whizzes across electrons. But to me, it was a scientific reality, but it wasn't in any way diminished for its miraculousness. In fact, the fact that we could think about it in a scientific way makes it even more remarkable. I think I was given a gift by that early questioning of the ineffable, which sent me on as a kind of wandering mystic for the rest of my life. But it came through sitting next to my father and sitting still and just opening myself up to a mystery, to something that was greater than myself. I, of course, left the church, but it offered me some very significant foundational lessons. Your mention of the night sky leads us perfectly to your next book, number three. Well, the next book on my list is a modernist novel by Juna Barnes entitled Nightwood. It's a very strange and singular novel, and to me, it's my favorite novel of modernism. It's the story of an expatriate woman joining an expat community in Paris and discovering her sexuality, which would be queer. At the center of it was a very strange interlocutor called Dr. Matthew O'Connor, who was also known as Dr. Matthew Grain Assault Dante O'Connor, and he was this really fascinating, unreliable narrator, and someone who could negotiate the high elements of old Europe to the night and to alleyways in the street. And he himself is queer. And he becomes a kind of interlocutor to these young women as a kind of person they go to to ask questions. Nightwood's really about the movement of the 19th century into the 20th century from old Europe into modernism. 
from old orders of heterosexuality into new orders of discovery of queerness. But at one point, Nora Flood, our heroine of the book, goes to visit the doctor. And she's shocked because she has to climb six flights of stairs. And she finds this tiny room. And she knocks and she opens it. And she talks about how she's just overwhelmed by what's in the room, but how tiny it was and how impoverished this kind of larger-than-life figure, the doctor, lived. But more importantly, when she opened the door, he had a wig on, was rouged, and was in a gown. And he quickly took his wig off. And he said, you see, my dear, you can ask me anything. And so she proceeds to ask him about the night. And he has this unbelievable soliloquy about the night. It's one of the greatest meditations on the night that I know. And it's called Watchmen, What of the Night, which of course comes, I think, from Isaiah. But the thing that she says that most spoke to me when she's looking at the doctor in his cross dress, she says, he dresses to lie beside himself, who is so constructed that love for him could only be something special. And I find that to be an absolutely stunning locution, because we all dress to lie beside ourselves, and that love is something special, and it need to be constructed. And I think that art is a way in which we construct this notion of loving with the intellect, with observation, with psychology. Love is a very complex thing, and it's at the core of everything. But at any rate, when I was young and we went out dancing and the night was dark, I mean, I lived in New York from 1980 to 87, and I probably went out every night, and the night was my estate. In New York at that time, you had to really have a heads up when you went out because the air was just filled with crime, and you really had to pay attention, and it just made it absolutely fathomless in its kind of darkness. I embraced it in a way that was probably not healthy, but it's what I loved the most. The night felt endless and fathomless. And that was a different form of night than the reverie of the boy in the night sky. This was actually just getting lost in the dark and just really dissipating and indulging all of my id in all my drives, sexual, narcotic, dithyram or Dionysian with dancing and just laughter and absolute abandon and freedom. The night is rich and fathomless. And that chapter just unpacks all the ways in which the history of the night is performed. There's this wonderful moment. He talks about coming in in a carriage to Paris in the night and that you could basically smell it like a half a mile out because it was so filthy, filthy with the ambition of lowly activity. You mentioned your difficulties at school earlier on, and you didn't mention that you were expelled from kindergarten, which is an impressive statistic. And then your record of attending five high schools is also... I also attended four between K through eight. I went to four different schools. So, all right. So we're talking about nine nine (laughs) schools between kindergarten and the age of 18. What were you like as a teenager? I think I was savage. I think I was unstrung. I think that I was kind of lost and still in shock and outrage about that someone I loved so much could be taken away from me so quickly and so horribly. All of that affected me in my and I worried a lot. I worried about my brother Tommy and 
in the hospital, the mental institution. I worried about my brother's extremes and his alcoholism and his frailty. I worried about the fact that my mother was grieving and lost and irrevocably sad, that I could never rescue that sadness. And those are all two big things to maybe navigate. So I found a way through with a kind of just energy and savagery and also the use of marijuana and psychedelics to kind of open my mind. The thing was, I read through all of it. I drew through all of it. I looked at film through all of it. I listened to music through all of it. And those are the things that really carried me. A thing I was most interested in were these various arts and how I could reckon my life and my emotional state and my mess, to go back to Beckett, with these other forms that somehow allowed me to connect with the world. Now, the four-square reality of the classroom since I was a child was always just an anathema to me. It was a bummer. I hated it. It was so boring. And the way things were taught was just so boring. But then I would have in each moment, one teacher that I loved, and I would do always well in one class. But yeah, five, uh, five high schools. Yeah. How did your mother deal with this? And what were your interactions with her like? The interactions for my mother, since I could ever remember, were ones of just strict and constant dissatisfaction with my behavior. My mother was amazing at two things. She was an incredible cook, and she was an unbelievable critic. And she was brutal, my mother, my whole life. And she was just horrified by my behavior, embarrassed even, because she lived in a community with other people whose children did well, and I didn't. So she was mostly, it was just one of correction and disappointment, which also weighed heavily on me and made me feel that I was failing. I mean, I felt like I failed a lot because I couldn't perform in the orders that were the normative world. And yet I had a really rich and wild, un disciplined imagination, which happily I found a way to construct into something that's useful. Time to hear about your next book, Peter. It's the fourth. Well, the next book on my list is a poet that was extremely important to me. I probably discovered him before the others that I've mentioned, I mean, save Homer. That's Ezra Pound. He was an essential poet to the ground of contemporary poetry. Let's say this, he's in the groundwater. He did so many things for poetry, and one of the things that he did was connect all these histories of poetry and make them present. And the book that I really love, maybe my favorite book of his, more so than the Cantos, or even his unbelievable towering versions of Chinese poetry, which were the first incidents of Asian poetry coming to the West in 1915 in his book, Cathay. I almost chose that, but it's 1917. It's called Homage to Sextus Propertius. Coming up in a Catholic situation, studying Latin, I was a classics major at the end at NYU, and I was terrible at it, but it's what I loved, but I got to it all through Ezra Pound. And Propertius was a first century elegist. It's an amazing moment for Rome. It's Ovid, it's Lucretius, it's Catullus, it's Virgil, it's Propertius, he being the least known among them. It was unbelievable literature being written at that time and a culture beginning to understand its own power and to understand empire. But what Pound gives us and what Pound has done is he would create masks. He would write through another another's writing to find his own voice. 
the critics of Propertius of his book Homage to Sex and Propertius miss the idea that it's homage, and they just call the book as filled with howlers of terrible translation. They just take it apart. But as Pound said, I wasn't interested in writing a translation. I was interesting in reviving a dead man and bringing him back to life. What Pound rescues for us and what he gives us is the sensibility of what it was to be a Roman in the first century in an empire and singing both of war and of erotic love. So much of ancient poetry is erotic. I mean, it's kind of great. It's just, it's just flat out dirty. And I like that, of course. Propertius is almost like a braggadocio. If you think about a, a rapper today, he's like an early rapper. He's always singing of his prowess as a lover. And I like that too. But really what it has is the most remarkable music in the American language. And the other thing that Pound gives us, and so clearly in homage to sex is Propertius, is a very foundational notion that he gave to poetry and for his own, which is called subject rhyme. So he comes out of a moment where words rhyme and they're metered. And so instead of rhyming words, he's rhyming subjects. And he's writing Propertius at the height of the English Empire in 1917. He's taking that moment and the Roman moment and the beginning of the American moment through this, and he's rhyming all of these subjects. So all his all time is contemporaneous to go back to your quantum idea. And so it's a real act of genius. And it's also an act of genius to show that history repeats itself. And the other thing it teaches us that all empires fall. Pound really rescues a sensibility. That's the beautiful thing he does when he wears a mask. He brings us back an ancient sensibility and makes it contemporary. It really spoke to my early kind of bravado of youth, but I still love it. To me, it's still my favorite work of Pounds, and it's kind of there where he really finds his voice that would become his later voice. And it's the act that if you really go deep into another's work, what you really discover is your own voice. The great abiding love of a fellow's work is one of the heights of being a poet. In 1980, you went to study at New York University, as you've mentioned, and there you met the person you've described as your mentor, Michael Hannafin, who you've said gave me the world. That's pretty amazing. How did he do that? Michael became important to me because he mirrored back at me a version of me that was bigger than the box that one gets put in in normative culture. He was also unbelievably, undeniably brilliant, undeniably well-read, and also someone who suffered and was probably broken in some moment in his earlier life that he was surviving. I think it was maybe a mental break, but there was a fragility, and yet he was searingly intelligent. I remember going to his classroom for the first time as a freshman or my first year, and the reading list looked amazing. It was on Greek poetry, and his lectures just lit me up. They just blew my mind. And then I would talk to him after class and office hours, and we became fast friends. He was queer, though he was married. I don't never understood that one, but he was queer, obviously so. He was beautiful like Catherine Hepburn and serious and funny, a slight man. He obviously fell in love with me, and in some way I fell in love with him like one would love someone entirely. And so one night in June after my first year, 
I went to see Michael. I met him downstairs at his apartment on 13th Street in the West Village to bring back a book and to pick up another book. In fact, what our relationship was outside of class, he gave me a book every two weeks or every month that I had to read. And what it was was the foundational literature of of early man. It was like the Upanishads, the Ring Vedas, say Shonigan's Pillow Book, ancient Chinese poetry, a Frankel saga, the the Icelandic tales, uh, the Nibelungenlied, the German saga, Beowulf, all of these things. But I was going to drop off one book and pick up another one, and he came down and he was completely dressed like a woman. He was in a dress. He was made up. And he was kind of, I remember he had his hands behind his back, leaning up against the door. And it was a beautiful spring night with a big moon. And he was just kind of cooing to me. And we had a conversation. And then I left. It was interesting. I mean, I never questioned it or judged it. It was just like, oh, I see. That makes sense. That explains a few things to me. And it was really lovely to have a mentor who gave me so many books and so much information and spent so much time with me. Be someone that, like Dr. O'Connor in Nightwood, he dressed to lie beside himself who was so constructed that love for him could only be something special. We read a lot of Shakespeare together. We read the Cantos of Ezra Pound together, and Michael could do all the various languages, Spanish, the Provencal, the French, the Latin, the Greek. I mean, he was, he was just remarkable. He would read things with me, and he would also help me with my papers for other classes. He was unbelievably kind to me. He sadly died of AIDS in 87. Peter, you mentioned that during this period, what was recreational drug use became more serious. Your use of cocaine increased. You also began to use heroin. You dropped out of NYU for a spell. And this went on with a brief respite after a detox for a number of years until 1987, You've spoken a little bit about what you remember about this time, but I'd like to hear more. And I'm also really interested in what it was finally that enabled you to break that cycle and find your way out. That's a big question. The drug addiction takes care of itself. Just chemically, your body becomes more and more addicted to it. And I was getting further and further from the reality of the normal world. And I was becoming unmoored into the night and becoming unmoored into this other kind of alternative reality, call it an occult reality that narcotics gave me, which was also an education of time. It's as though it was time-lapse photography. I was sitting in a room doing cocaine for a week with somebody, and the sun would come up and go down and come up. And it felt like I was just watching the seasons pass, and yet I was somehow still at the center of it. It gave me an understanding of time. It helped me see things that I might not have otherwise gotten to without it. So it had a use, but reality becomes untenable and your body can't really sustain it. And as you become more addicted, it becomes a real drag. You know, they talk about it as a monkey on your back, and it really becomes that. It's like a thing, it's a beast you have to feed all the time, or you just crash and you feel unbelievably lost and physically in agony and self-loathing. So increasingly, I had to constantly be feeding that beast and not fall into that other space to kind of to look away from how I was dissipating my life. But I had some amazing times, I have to confess. I mean, speedballing, shooting coke and heroin, 
it felt as good as anything I've ever felt. When you put the, as Lou Reed would say, the spike into your vein and you pulled back on the plunger a little bit, you'd see your blood curl into the plunger and you could taste the cocaine on your tongue. And this bell would go off in your head to the point where you thought you were going to pass out. And then you would plunge and then the heroin would move through your veins like warm seawater. It was as though it was as though your veins were lined with feathers and you would just descend dreaming in another tongue and you would find yourself completely free of gravity, of weightlessness, of sorrow, of pain, and everything was relieved and everything was like a weird spring day sitting on a stoop listening to the tinkle of the ice cream man while listening to like 70s soul music. It was just, it was great. It was just totally freeing. And even talking about it, it brings me down to some kind of calm. But I realized that that calm could be found in art, that sense of being centered in something that was euphoric could happen in the act of writing, in the act of witnessing other great art. It's, there's a euphoria for me. They're somehow connected. I got off it because it was untenable. I mean, I was running out of money. I had nothing else I could sell. There was nobody else I could lie to to get money from. I mean, it's a really horrible way to be. Actually, the day that I quit was Michael Hannafin's wife, Tova, I was actually going to sell my last rare book, which was Homage to Sextus Propertius, and Michael had given it to me. I was leaving my apartment, which I only crashed on the couch. I had two other dudes living in the bedrooms because they paid the rent, and I charged them more so I had money. And I didn't stay there a lot because I'd stay at other people's places getting high. At any rate, I was back in my place getting a book, walking out the door, the phone rings, and it's Tova. Michael's wife, and she said that he'd gone into a coma because he had an embolism. And I was just devastated by the news. And I just said, what can I do? And she said, you can't do anything for him. You can only do something for yourself. He was absolutely broken the last time he saw you and the choices you've made for yourself. He was beside himself. And he's put so much time and energy into you and your education. He was just broken. And you can't do anything for him. You can only do something for yourself. I felt remonstrated and I heard what she said and I hung up. I put the book back on the shelf and people have been putting AA literature into my kitchen drawers and sock drawers. I opened a kitchen drawer and I found this num these numbers of detox centers that someone had left. I started calling all those numbers and one took my insurance and they said, we can have a bed for you in three days. And I said, I don't think I can make it three days. I need to come tomorrow. I said, okay, come tomorrow. And I took a one-way bus ride up to Sullivan County to this hospital and I never looked back. I'm really lucky. Getting through the detox was horrible because they give you something called Narcan it instantly overrides the opiates in your bloodstream and nullifies them. And it felt like I was dropping down an elevator that was crashing while somebody was turning the volume up of the world around me, got louder and louder. And I guess I passed out, like I just collapsed. And I woke up three days later and I was strapped to the bed with my ankles and wrists because I was flopping and going into convulsions. And then they came in and they said, Okay, so you've been doing more than heroin, cocaine. Give us all the drugs you've been on. So then I listed all the various drugs I'd been doing. 
And they told me I was dying of malnutrition. I mean, I weighed 230 pounds. I weighed 149 pounds. And my liver was swollen and I was jaundiced. And I had something called hepatitis non-A, non-B, which would become hepatitis C, which I later had to go through a course of interferon, which happily I've been clear of for 25 years. The virus is no longer in my body. It was rough and I was lucky and I was strong. My physical body was strong when I was young. I don't know what to say. I survived it all. And once I got out and went back to the Berkshires, I was given a job. I got to live in a janitor's closet above the restaurant where I waited tables and I went to meetings every day. During the same period, you co-founded and co-edited the journal Oblique, which over a span of six years and 11 issues makes up a who's who of American vanguard poetry. How did that come about? I was working on my journal Oblique the whole last year of my addiction. The money came from a friend of mine who was a Coke dealer, and Colin and I set up a bank account. But during that whole year, I just used all the money and shot it up. And then we had worked on the journal. I dictated letters to Connell, and we sent them out to a variety of writers. And I let them know that we had the funds, that we were producing a journal a year later, and these were the other authors that were being asked. And every single one of them sent work because they liked the society that I created. Spicer says magazines are societies. Dickinson tells us the soul selects her own society. I was voting for a society that I wanted to be a part of eventually. I was creating a constellation of poets that were central to me in the contemporary moment. And they all responded. I mean, embarrassingly, I signed all those letters in Greek as Telemachus. Totally humiliating now. But weirdly, they wrote me back. I don't know. Did they write back to you as Telemachus? No. (laughs) (laughs) And they spent work. I'm sure they thought I was strange. But some of them knew who I was already, like the Waldrips and other people. We put together this journal, which was just an overnight sensation. It was received into the poetry world with open arms. People absolutely loved it and regarded it. And then we started to get work by so many great writers and we'd get their best work. And we laid out the poems very carefully and really beautiful. So if you had sent me a poem that had like three lines on a page for seven pages, that's how it would appear in the journal. It wasn't all jammed up. I actually honored manuscript pages and it's called oblique because there was no poetics because at that time in the in the 80s, it was all poetics and poetry wars and this and that. I wanted to foreground the oblique nature of poetry as a way to make meaning. I didn't want it to be paraphrased or written about. I only wanted the poem to perform because for me, the poem is enough. The discourse around it, poetics comes second, the poem has to lead. I knew that year that I was shooting up the dope, shooting up the money for the magazine that I was that was going to come to pass and I knew that the journal was going to be forthcoming. I was in touch with a French, great, he's an Egyptian Jew from Cairo who had to leave in 57 during the Suez crisis, the great Edmond Jabez, who moved to Paris and then would write the Book of Questions, a seven-volume treatise on the book and the desert and of emancipatory space. He was talking in the poem that we were going to publish about lying. And I wrote him a very candid letter that I'd been lying and that I was a junkie and that I'd been lying to myself and to everyone around me or thought I was. I guess they knew. He wrote me back a very beautiful letter, which was important to me. And why I thought to confess to him, I don't know. But I loved his writing and I felt that his writing was ultimately about truth and reality in a very large mystical way. 
And that was another piece that happened. I mean, there was a variety of forces that led to me getting straight, and Oblique was definitely one of them. I'm really grateful that experience. And then Connell was horrified with me that I used the money. But I just went back to my friend, Johnny, the drug dealer, got more money. That's how the magazine started. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's inauspicious beginnings. Let's move on, Peter, to book number five. So the fifth book is Wallace Stevens, the great Wallace Stevens, and it's the book Transport to Summer. Wallace Stevens is huge for me, the way Dickinson is, or Pound, he's foundational to me. And it's just the sheer act of the imagination of a philosophical romantic inquiry into the nature of reality. It's his unbelievable cadences, his lawyerly kind of diction, his precision at somehow rendering the ineffable again and again and again. And Transport to Summer has three amazing series in it, my favorite being Aesthete du Mal, The Aesthetics of Evil, which is very Baudelarian. And then it has the Credences of Summer, and then it has the great notes toward a supreme fiction in three sections. And then it has all these other incredible single poems, like No Sop, No Possum, No Taters. Crazy title. And this is a man who was an insurance lawyer, in fact, a vice president of Hartford Indemnity, was considered the dean of insurance. He wrote the most insane poetry. It's just out there. The Stitu Mal is just out there. I loved how far it just goes into this kind of height of the imagination, and yet it's real. Wallace Stevens became important to me, too, on a personal level because my brother Tom would get off his medication. I had mentioned that he was schizophrenic. He'd get off his medication, and what he would do is he would walk. He'd just walk through the night down these country roads in the Berkshires that were black as hell. And he get picked up by the cops. You know, they realized something was wrong. They bring him back to my mother's. He got off his meds, and he didn't. He wasn't going to be able to make it to work. So he was a night watchman at one of the many resorts in the Berkshires. My mother called my brother Michael and said, "Can you cover for Tom? I don't want him to lose his job." So we said, "He said, yeah." So I went. He goes, "Let's go, Pete." And he went. We went together, and he brought Wallace Stevens, and. I remember spending an entire night from, let's say, eight at night till eight in the morning, reading Wallace Stevens aloud, passing the book back and forth with my brother, Michael, and just marveling, basically just laughing out of sheer, you know, like how, like the big X of the returning primitive or poems like pastoral nuns. I mean, this stuff is out there. And also then there's poems that are very serious about the nature of philosophical reality, all the various things that it could do, how musical it was, but yet how those cadences rescued me from my real worry and fear for my brother Tommy. Those cadences rescued me from that. And so that night, Wallace Stevens rescued me from my real sadness for my brother. That's beautiful. Peter, you've said there are several different versions of Peter Gizzy. There's the Peter Gizzy who lived in New York City, the Peter Gizzy who lived in the Berkshires, in Providence, in California, in Amherst, and so on. And in one of your poems, you wrote, picture this, work is no longer a place, but place is constant work. In what ways do you think about place, and how have the places you've lived in, particularly Massachusetts, affected your life and work? Okay, so 
That question is enormous. And because you mentioned the poem Etudes Evidence or a working definition of the sun gear where that line comes from, I can speak to a place where I inhabited for four months that changed my writing life, which was in Marseille, when I had a residency at the Centre International Poésie Marseille, the Centre for International Poetry in Marseille, where I was given a residency, and it was the best ever. They give you an amazing tiny apartment on a 2,000-year-old street called Rue de Refuge, which leads down to the old hospital, which is where the CIPM was located with an amazing library. And they gave you a stipend, and whatever you wrote and completed, not just there, but what you began writing and completed would be translated into a book. I mean, it was fabulous. I was in France, in Marseille, in 1999, where a lot of people didn't speak English. And I barely spoke French. So I was reduced to these very simple terms. I was outside of my language. I was on my own. George Oppen writes, I like all the little words, tree, house, hill. And I was reduced. My language is reduced. And I discovered that by simplifying, I could say more. And that place of being displaced in my language allowed me to create a poetry that would then carry me through the rest of my life. That's very interesting. What's your sixth book? Well, it had to be on my list, which is Allen Ginsberg's Howl and Other Poems, of course. That was a book that every adolescent, at least in my era, had to encounter. It blew my mind. I mean, up to then, I'd, I, I'd known Whitman, but then here it was, absolutely all the way out there and sexualized and political. It celebrated while it critiqued at the same time. Howell is one of the most significant poems we have in American poetry. And what's beautiful about it and what carries it is this incredible cadence that Ginsburg creates in these strophes. It carries you, like you don't need to carry it. Some works you need to carry that are very difficult. You know, you have to carry them to get through. With Howell, all the poems in that book, they carry you beautifully. Along with Howell's A Supermarket in California, A Cottage in Berkeley, the amazing poem America, In Back of the Real, Sunflower Sutra, every poem is stunning in that book. And it's a book of real becoming. It's obviously a first book, and it's a towering book, but it's a book that's just full-blown. It has all the energy of incipience, of discovery and beginning throughout the whole book. It has this level and excitement and exuberance of self-discovery. It keeps performing that every time you read it. I taught it in a class three years ago in a class called Contemporary Poetry, and they're a little like, well, this is written 50 years ago. And then we read the poem, and they came back, and they were blown away. And the discussion was, wow, this poem could have been written yesterday because nothing's changed in the world around us. If Ginsburg teaches us anything is that the history of the world was made by assholes for the benefit of assholes. That book is just this excoriating critique of the capital world. It's also this unbelievable discovery, this unchecked wild discovery of one's sexuality and all sexualities. It's also filled with profanity and it uses it to great effect. People just think it's undressed or unwashed and it's profane. No, he uses his lines and his language and the way in which he engages in profanity is just a great act of skill and of craft at the same time. 
a couple of things about Allen Ginsberg. When I was in high school, my last high school, my junior, my fifth high school, I had a beautiful friend named Robert Seidel, who was also your lifetime friend, who's now gone and passed at 50. A beautiful friend. At any rate, my great teacher there was named Pete Thompson, my Latin and Spanish teacher. And he took Robert and I twice to Boston to see Allen Ginsberg read when we were in high school and junior and senior year. And I'll never forget it. Ginsberg was reading. It was a small setting. And I remember we walked in with Pete Thompson and he was wearing his Red Sox cap. And Ginsberg was at the door and he said, would you bless my cap? Ginsburg took the cap, put it on, and gave the entire reading with the baseball cap on, and then gave it back to my friend. I was like, wow, this guy's cool. Like, not only is he a god, he's just really funny and just really down to earth. And then when I went to NYU, my classmate, Brian Jackson, lived in Allen's apartment on 12th Street. So I would go over to Allen's apartment every afternoon and read through his library and, quote, do homework. And the person who was always there was Gregory Corso, driving us insane, and always asking, hey, Giz, hey, Gizzy, man, hey, Gizzy, you got a 10, man? He's always trying to hit us up for money for heroin. But one time, Alan came back from his farm upstate Cherry Valley, which is where he spent most of his time in those early 80s and those years. He came, opened the door to Brian's bedroom. We've been smoking a lot of dope. And He's like, boys, there's entirely too much dope smoke in this room. Open the window. I'm going to put on a pot of coffee. I just went to the deli. There's fresh cold cuts. Have a sandwich. Have some coffee and do your homework. <laughs> and that's not who you imagine Allen Ginsberg would be. But Howell was just a gateway drug, as it is for many young people. It just lets you into a mad, wild, free world. And what you discover is mad, wild, great great craft of poetry, just unbelievable craft. Peter, you've said, I like to think that being a poet is a form of disobedience, a form of civil disobedience, perhaps because I've signed up to be a mystery in the face of violence. And that's a very compelling statement. Tell me more about what this means, particularly now in 2020. Well, I mean, that statement really can refer to Ginsburg's howl the act of civil disobedience and to sign up to be a mystery in the face of violence. What it means to me now is that I'm not responding to the world in kind. I'm not responding to its cruelty, to its inhumanity, to its lack of care for anything that's human. I'm not responding to it in kind. I'm not giving back what it's giving me. In fact, I'm taking it and transforming it into another valence into poetry, into a poetics. And so what I'm interested in poetry for mine is that I want to be open and vulnerable because I think there's great strength in being open. And I need to be open to receive the language because writing for me now in the last decade or more is so much an act of reception, of listening. I need to be open and I really privilege vulnerability in the face of violence. And so I think it's disobedience or civil disobedience because I am not throwing a rock back at the rock they're throwing at me. Could you talk a little more about what you mean when you say that so much of the writing is about listening? When I was younger, it was really an act of will. It's what I wanted to do. Now it's just part of my life. How I found it was just by sitting still and dilating I often can sometimes put on a piece of instrumental music or a piece of music, and I listen 
and I relax and I open, then I begin to write. Like the language starts coming to me, the phrases come to me. And then I turn the music down and then I just really go into the space that these lines have created that I can work with to build something larger out of it. And what that something larger is, is my personhood and is my place in the world as both a citizen and as a mystery. So listening to me is one of the great privileges and experiences that one has as a writer and particularly a poet, because what I've done with my life is learn how to listen. Again, as I was preparing for this conversation, I found something that you'd said about poetry as a social force. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read that to you. W.H. Auden's famous statement that poetry makes nothing happen always seemed an apt perspective from which to consider poetry's inability to shape policy. But perhaps this is too narrow a read of this famous line. Perhaps poetry is effective precisely because it does in fact make nothing happen. Here is Dickinson again. The human heart is told of nothing. Nothing is the force that renovates the world. This is really interesting, and I'd love it if you could unpack it a little bit. Well, let's just start with that unbelievable last line of Emily Dickinson. Nothing is the force that renovates the world. One of the ways to think about that nothing is the engagement with the invisible world the understanding of one's periodicity, that we're not going to be here forever, that we're going to be gone a lot longer than we are here. That's a kind of nothing. And that reality is to understand that in a way, we're part of nothing. Poetry does not shape policy. It never has. It's not its role. Its role is to describe and discover and uncover and to sing the invisible world. And the invisible world is the one that is one's interiority, is one's privacy, is one's turbulent inner life. That's the nothing that poems make happen because we begin to be given a relief and a shape and a sound and a dimension. And that way, nothing becomes everything. Nothing is the force that renovates the world. It's time to hear about another book, number seven. Well, another book and another towering poet. All these books, by the way, are books that were important to me in my adolescence. They're all formative books. This next one is John Ashbery, and that was really hard to pick because they're all good. Between 1956 to 1990, every book is a revelation. But the book that I chose is his most canonical book, and maybe one of the most canonical books of the 20th century, is Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror is the title poem, and it's a long meditation on a painting by Parmigianino. It's a young man looking into a mirror that's curved, a convex mirror, and it bends the entire world around it. The painting itself is just an act of sheer virtuosity of manipulating two-dimensional space to create three-dimensional space. But what the poem is is truly a meditation on the viewer and the viewed, because Parmigino's looking out at us. Ashbery creates this dialogue between the viewer and the viewed. It's in six long stanzas. I got to check that. And each one takes another aspect of what it is to see, what vision is, or what it is to be seen. And it's this amazing dialogue. And like everything with Ashbery, he takes something as a starting point and then he just builds out from that into this kind of visionary world. 
John was a very beloved friend of mine in life. And I remember one time saying to him, you know, your poems are like a good governess. And he says, yes, the lesson is learned. Because his poems, they're about the experience of experience. It's about the act of reading, the act of reading. Everything is doubled. There's this real dimensionality. He has an incredible abstract imagination. And he creates this beautiful abstract music that's unlike anything other. And we forget now, you know, I mentioned Ginsburg. Now I'm talking about Ashbury. We forget how foundational these poets are to how poetry would be written. If Ashbury, when people read him now, don't seem as surprising, it's because the world has been adjusted to his view. He is one of the most significant poets, world poets of the second half of the 20th century period. There's a gorgeous surface to his poems, a gorgeous, ascetic, abstract surface. And yet he's constantly manipulating the quotidian world, the goofy world, the world of literature, the tradition, cultures, the newspaper. He's putting all of these things together. So it's made out of real things. But the way in which he makes these phrases sing, these sentences begin and they end in a place that you never thought that they would end. And he does this line after line after line after line. So you think you're somewhere and then you're elsewhere. He has a great line that explains that over near somewhere else. That is the problem of the difficulty. It's all these things that are always proximate and it's always doubled. It's always about the experience of the experience. In fact, he takes a De Chirico title of a painting and he uses it as a title of one of his books in 68 called, 69, excuse me, called The Double Dream of Spring. So again, it's the double dream. It's that doubling. Everything is always multiplied in his poems. When I read that book in, when I was 18, it had come out in 75. I read it in 78. It changed my world because it was a whole other way of thinking about poetry. And it was a whole other way to engage with abstract thought. It was, it was new. It was like punk to me. Like the way I was discovering punk, I discovered Ashbury. It was a main line. It was incredible. You've also, over the course of your career, frequently written poems from images, paintings, photographs, collages. I'm interested in the way that you think about artists, perhaps in relation to the way you think about poets. Tell me about your relationship to visual culture. It's an enormous one because I feel when I was young, I could read pictures much better than I could read language because I was dyslexic and called hyperactive. And, you know, they thought I might have had a learning disability and I very well might have. But pictures I could read, picture books, books of painting that we have. I could spend hours looking into them. They're very comforting. What's the first image that we see in life? What's the first thing we learn how to read? It's the human face. That's the first text that we'll all experience. The first text is the human face. And we learn how to read it for all sorts of signs and meanings and understanding. It is the text. It's the ur text. So when I was a boy looking at painting and looking at books and picture books, I could read them and I could begin to see narratives and I could enjoy the shapes and the colors and the three dimensions that they could create. So visual culture was always important to me. As a boy, movies became a huge language. And one of the reasons I liked them was because I was the youngest and constantly being remonstrated and told to do it like this or like that. When the million dollar movie came on channel nine on Sunday afternoons and everybody was sitting watching the movie, 
no one bothered me. I was completely and totally free of being corrected, of discipline. And I love them. I love them for that. But for me, it's not about explaining what I'm seeing, describing what I'm seeing. It's a launching point to move out, to voyage out, to narrate on the page the act of reception. I'm narrating what's happening to me in my inner life when I'm looking at a visual cue. I'm trying to discover what it is that's affecting me about this painting, about this film, about this visual correlative that allows me to make something that's visual and concrete into sound. What's your eighth book? My last book on the list is had to be Jack Spicer's After Lorca. Jack Spicer, I found by accident. It was the Phoenix Bookshop in New York on Jones Street in the West Village. It was one of the great educational spaces of my 20s. And it was in an unbelievable poetry bookshop. That's all it was. It was like Christmas for me in that place. And I walked in one day and then displayed out was a book that had just come out in 1980 called One Night Stand and Other Poems by Jack Spicer. I had recently been criticized by a young woman that I was seeing that I was only interested in a one-night stand. I'd never heard that expression before, and there it was in front of me in this book. I was like, okay, maybe I'll learn something. So I picked it up, and I started reading it, and being a person who's interested in ancient languages and Orpheus, who was just filled with Orpheus screaming on the jukebox in hell, there was all these references to traditional ancient poetry. I was like, wow, this is funny, and it's really great, and it's heartbreaking. I loved it. And then I came back like 10 days, two weeks later, and I said that Jack Spicer book was incredible. And he said, well, if you like Jack Spicer, this is the book you should read. It was the book that Robin Blazer edited for Black Sparrow Press called Collected Books of Jack Spicer, because Spicer believed in writing in books and not in single poems. So he called all his earlier single poems, which he cast off, One Night Stands. And instead, he was in the favor of a serial composition. And the opening book of the collected books, written in 1957, which becomes his first book, is called After Lorca. And I liked it being young. And you think of Pound wearing a mask, it's like a young poet. What happens when you read a poet and it destroys you? You know, what do you do after Lorca, right? What do you do with that? Belatedness, that you can't be Lorca. So, you know, what do you do now? What do you do after Lorca? Or, after Lorca, as in the sense that it's a la Lorca, it's with Lorca. It's written like as an imitation or out of Lorca. But then it opens with an introduction by Garcia Lorca. But Lorca's been dead for many years. He writes it from the grave as an introduction to this young poet's first book, which is just hilarious. The way it's written is hilarious. It's just odd and funny and macabre and like some weird dance with the uh, underworld. And then there's all these translations of Lorca, and in there are 13 poems that are Jack Spicer poems masquerading as Lorca poems. And then there's these unbelievable translations, these truly great translations of Lorca, some of the best we have. And in fact, his translation of Ode to Walt Whitman is the single greatest translation we have of that long poem, great poem of Lorca's which ends with a list of international faggotry, is what it's called. Spicer was queer, an abject queer, had a hard time with his queerness. He addressed it, and he was outspoken about it in his poems, but in his life, he suffered great loneliness. The poems of Spicer's that are in that book are after Lorca. They're like, they come out of a Lorcan space. 
but they're very much the voice of Jack Spicer. And it's, again, a young poet discovering himself through the work of another, which is so how many artists are born. In there are six programmatic poetics letters to Lorca about how poetry behaves. And they're kind of breezy and chatty, as though they're just a letter to a friend. They're just outrageous and funny. In them, there's this great notion of tradition that I really love when he says that poets are patiently in different centuries and in different languages, all patiently writing the same poem. Nothing is really added or nothing is lost. And it's this idea that, again, when I say I'm a class of worker that's been here just next to the story, it's as though we're just a piece of the song and that poetry has these kind of proper concerns of romantic love, physical beauty, of divinity, of accident, of outrage, of political invective. But what Spicer really gives us is by creating that frame of the introduction from the grave of Lorca, by writing these letters to Lorca, that's actually like the real innovative poetry of it and then his own poems. But really, by translating these beautiful, modernist, surreal poems of Lorca's, which are truly gorgeous, he's just really giving us back all the proper concerns of poetry. He's giving us old-timey poetry, but now he's transformed it and made it real by the fact of the frame of the book. And then the other fun part of that, I became to realize, you know, Ashbery's book was called Some Trees, and it was picked by W.H. Auden. And the Yale Younger series was the great series that was giving birth these first books of all these poets, like Adrian Rich, W.S. Merwin, John Ashbery, Jim Tate. So Spicer being very much of a West Coast artist, hating everything on the East Coast. He spent a year, almost a year in the East Coast and hated it. He was very much loyal to being a Californian poet, and particularly a North Beach poet in San Francisco, place was important to him. He would never be a Yale Younger Series winner, wouldn't want to participate in that economy. But in his own outrageous way, when he was outrageous and very difficult, he chooses who could be the other great queer poet to introduce a first book by a young poet. So instead, he invents an introduction by Garcia Lorca. So in that way, it's a send-up of what would be considered official verse culture. He's doing so many things in this book, and yet it's just a book of lyric poems. And yet it's doing all of these things, taking apart poetry land. I wanted to ask you about one of the letters from Spicer to Lorca in this book. Spicer wrote, things do not connect, they correspond. And this seems very fitting for your work also. What happens when things correspond as opposed to when they connect? Things do not connect, they correspond. This is going back to Spicer's notion of tradition, that poets are patiently writing the same poem in different centuries and in different languages. So we correspond with these other poems, but they don't connect. It's a correspondence. We're not actually doing a one-to-one relationship. We're corresponding with them in a new tongue with new concerns. I think of a poem also in correspondence, as Spicer writes these letters, as a kind of an epistolatory reality. There is an apostrophe in a poem, and it's addressing a you, an other. And there's this correspondence, there's this way in which I am speaking to the world, I am speaking to the beloved, I am speaking to you as a reader. Correspondence can also mean how we talked about ekphrasis, the sister arts. You can take a visual correlative and turn it into a linguistic act. 
That's a correspondence. Do they connect? No, they correspond. So that's kind of how I think about it. The idea of things corresponding as opposed to connecting brings John Cage to mind. Your book of selected poems is titled In Defense of Nothing, which also, I think, alludes to Cage. We spoke a little bit about nothing earlier on in our conversation, and this brings us back full circle, I think. Why did you choose that title for this mid-career collection of your work? So you brought up Cage. He says, I have nothing to say, and I'm saying it and that's poetry. I love the idea of defending nothing. A great moment when I gave that book to a filmmaker I truly, I think is one of the greatest living filmmakers, uh, Luc Dardenne of the Dardenne brothers, this Belgian filmmaker, I gave it to him. He said, oh, that's the best defense. Because I don't want to defend a nation. I don't want to defend a position. I don't even like the stance of a defense. So defending nothing is not to defend anything. Well, given what you said earlier, it seems to me that it would also be an argument for nothing. Well said. That's actually better said than thank you for that. At the end of each conversation, I ask my guests to read a passage from one of the books they've chosen. Peter, what are you going to read? This is a poem of Jack Spicer's masquerading as a Lorca poem, as a translation, and it's called A Diamond. A diamond is there at the heart of the moon, or the branches, or my nakedness. And there is nothing in the universe like diamond, nothing in the whole mind. The poem is a seagull resting on a pier at the end of the ocean. A dog howls at the moon, a dog howls at the branches, a dog howls at the nakedness, a dog howling with pure mind. I ask for the poem to be as pure as a seagull's belly, the universe falls apart and discloses a diamond. Two words called seagull are peacefully floating out where the waves are. The dog is dead there with the moon, with the branches, with my nakedness, and there is nothing in the universe like diamond, nothing in the whole mind. Peter, thank you so much for speaking with me. That was really a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure for me too. Thank you for having me on your podcast. This has been Acts and Facts. I'm Richard Croft. My thanks to Charles Curtis for allowing me to use Captain Hume's Galliard by Tobias Hume as a the theme music for this podcast. Mm-hmm.